Welcome to Ritual of Practice Podcast. I am your host, Angela Houghton. The intention of this podcast is to inspire your practice. I thought it would be fun to offer stories of how different people integrate practice in their lives. I am so appreciative of the humans that share their experience on this podcast and to you, listener, for joining us. May you show up for what lights you up. Today on the show, I am deeply honored to have one of my teachers for yoga and meditation, Jeannie Manchester. I began practicing with Jeannie about eight years ago, and what I feel that Jeannie has really supported me in is deepening my practices. Also, a practice could be referred to, and Jeannie brings this up in the conversation, sadhana. And specifically, I feel that Jeannie has supported me in deepening my devotion. So deepening not in the sense of of going physically deeper in postures, but deepening the internal conversation, what's happening on the inside. And I think you'll feel Jeannie's passion in this conversation. And even if you don't have interest in yoga and meditation, uh, she has a beautiful story to share of her journey through Um, just really devoting herself to the practices and how that continues to evolve over time. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. I do want to say that towards the end of the interview, I use a swear word. So if there are little kids around, I, (laughs) I chose not to delete it in this episode. And then I'm realizing with podcasting, (laughs) having these conversations and just observing myself, you know, because time passes between when I record and when I edit And, you know, just how we are as humans from moment to moment, some things stay steady and other things are constantly, you know, evolving or expanding. And, you know, I change my mind often. So just allowing for some grace with that. So in the moment where I swear and I'm reflecting on, you know, kind of a deeply personal journey that I'm on, you know, I just noticed that there's already like a shift in my perspective on that. And so that's been fun to play with as well. So here's to grace on the journey <laughs> and practice. Uh, so delighted to be here today with Jeannie Manchester. Thanks for listening. Again, thank you for being here with me and as I was preparing for this interview, it was wild to think about my very first question for you, which is going to feel massive, <laughs> just knowing what I already know about you. And, and the question is, what sparked your interest initially in yoga and meditation? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Isn't that a massive question? <laughs> you want to answer now? Yeah, well, you can ease into it. So I think that, uh, you know, I guess I'm curious, was meditation part of it out of the gates or was it uh, more of an asana practice? Totally more asana. (laughs) I I was in my 20s and I was super athletic and, um, you know, loved moving my body. And if I'm super honest now, I would say that there was also sort of, I was running a lot, you know, body image. Um, When I found yoga, it was like, wow, this this is powerful. And it, it, it started to work on the mind, you know, and the, the habits. So, you know, I, I, I sometimes think when I look back now, there was the hand of grace, we would say the invisible hand of grace, but I wasn't aware of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that I had been on a mystical path the entire time, but it was, I, I wasn't aware of it. You know, it was like, oh, this yoga is really fun. It's really athletic. It's, you know, I've got this great community, you know, at Richard Freeman's studio, it was, um, we would gather every Sunday to hear him talk. And then the philosophy started coming in, you know, it was like, you know, when you walk into someone's studio of his caliber, you walk into a mystical experience, even if you're not registering it. And that's something I've realized over the years, even with the meditation I'm teaching now that I wasn't registering what I register now. Because I'm more open, you know, I'm, I'm, I've changed from the inside out. Um, so I think that's true of the asana as well, that even if we don't understand why we're drawn to asana or a teacher, that it, it's beyond the asana, but we don't, we don't see it at first. We don't 
register that at first. Mm-hmm. Now, now that so many years have passed, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, like the signs, the sort of auspicious signs that that show you that you've been on this path are pretty outrageous. So yeah, it was definitely athletic at first. It was, you know, Richard always had this way of teaching that was about meditation and movement. Um, you know, that that I still love to bring into my my teaching, you know, just that you're moving with your breath. The breath is in charge and that there is this recognition that the breath is guiding us. You know, that's he would call it a moving, moving meditative awareness exercise. How many times a week were you practicing with him when you first started? Oh my gosh, like almost every day. Like it didn't start out like that because I I started like twice a day. I was, you know, riding my mountain bike a lot and I was um working in a I was a pastry chef. <laughs> so I had a job and then the, eventually the yoga took oh, took me over. Like I I had a I had a wedding cake business. I remember pretty distinctly just wanting to be at yoga more than I wanted to be anywhere. Mm. So um, it, it, it became, it twice a week became like three times and four times. And then, and um, you know, it was almost every day of the week, aside from maybe one, I had a super patient husband. <laughs> so was there, but were you with Tim? I'm just sharing. I mean, this could be shared all over the world. So Tim is, Jesus, yeah, yeah. Since we have an intimate yeah. friendship. I knew that. Um, yes. Over to his name. So when you first started practicing, were you already in relationship with Tim or? I was. I was actually, um, when I was in cooking school in Vermont, I met Tim, my my husband of 30 years. And I remember he belonged to an athletic club and he was like, we should take a yoga class. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, let's do that. And we both loved it. And then when I got, we got to Boulder in 1989 Tim was actually in Southern Colorado helping his brother teach um, or coach soccer at Colorado College. And I was here. And uh, I remember distinctly, I was um, working as a pastry chef and I had a friend and I was like, really want to find a yoga class. And we had both heard of Richard Freeman's studio. So we walked into Richard Freeman's studio and it was like, you never turned back because, Hmm. gosh, he's such a masterful teacher. And you just, I always felt like when I walked into that studio, I had come home, you know, and we could explore that if you wanted, but that sense of coming home to my own voice, to my own self was particularly important to me um, as a child of, of an alcoholic family, you know, just trying to find yourself in, in sort of the chaos of alcoholism. Uh, I can now kind of discern that like, oh yeah, like I felt like the quiet in there because Richard was really about, you walk into that studio and it's not like you're, you're chit-chatting. You've come to practice and, you know, you step on your mat and, and your breath is is there. And so it was a very, very quiet atmosphere. And it was a really beautiful place for me to hear my own inner voice. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really, really powerful. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's so sweet to think back on those early days. Um, there was so much community and so much reverence for, for what Richard was bringing through. And, you know, we would all make a point to gather after practice on Sundays to hear him talk. And it's one of my, my favorite times of the week was, and that was before my children. And then actually after <laughs> children as well. Um, yeah, I was there for a long time. Do you still practice with him? Is he in carbon? You know, he's he lives part in Thailand now. So um, I, I try to make a point to get in touch with them when they're in town still. I'll send them texts and, and emails. And I did interview them during the pandemic for a, a course I did on um, the Divine Feminine. And um, that was really beautiful. Those interviews were very, very beautiful. So I have a connection. I don't per se practice Ashtanga so much since the pandemic, actually, I was practicing with Ashtangis. Um, I had kind of gone back to that practice in the way that worked for my body. Um, and now, you know, that, that sort of died out with, um, a lot of restrictions during the pandemic and, 
I just found my way back into my own studio and I've just started supporting my students where they were at. And my practice, you know, my advanced practice sort of has taken a, a backseat. I would say um, meditation has become more important to me than, than an advanced asana practice. Hmm. Probably it's true of aging anyway, right? It's just um, balancing my love for mountain biking and um, skiing and hiking with my asana practice, working out. Um, it's all more balanced now. <laughs> Versus leaning into the yoga and asana. So was there a period of time where you ever lost interest or has this been steady? It's been pretty steady, I have to say. I would say that maybe um, during the pandemic, it shifted for me in a way that I, I think there was always something in me that was trying to hang on and hang on to my Ashtanga sort of roots Mm -hmm. um, such a powerful practice, even though I was always practicing in a way that was better for my body, you know, I would throw in different postures. I wouldn't follow it strictly. And of course I had all that Anusara background, um, that, that would show me what I needed in a certain kind of biomechanical way. Um, so just like meditation, I think the mystical part of me, um, harnesses myself to, to sadhana. And, and part of that is it, even if it's 10 minutes of asana, you know, I practiced with my class this morning, it was an hour of asana and then a little bit of pranayama and then meditation and shavasana. So, um, that can be plenty for me these days. I'm just not, um, I don't feel the same, maybe will force or ego force or I don't know what that is when we get attached, you know, it's sort of that attachment to our practices. I don't really have that anymore. I do, I do have a regular, like move your body kind of practice, like move your body every day, you know, um, whether it's a walk or a workout or asana, but I don't, I don't, um, I used to have a drive that was definitely like, wow, I should practice those back bends today, or I should, you know, get my, foot behind my head or you know it those are things that I could do um pretty easily with regular practice and now I don't have the same I I actually think meditation has changed me so much that I recognize that the real activation of of, of the kundalini current doesn't come through asana so mm -hmm. it prepares us and it, it's really you know quite good for the body but I don't have the same drive as I had in my twenties or thirties or forties. Um, you know, I'm almost 60. So, um, it's, it's really hitting me like, wow, I'm really entering that wise woman stage. And, and, and I think that naturally you slow down and I have a longing of course, to support my aging body in a good way and to age really gracefully. So that means taking care of my body. But I don't, you know, it's just not the same kind of push or drive that I had. Um, and it feels good. It feels appropriate. It feels like I listen more to my students and I listen more to my own body. Like, what does it need today? And I listen, you know, I really listen. Like, what is in the room? What needs to be taught? It's very different than sort of taking the seat as the teacher. You know, it's like, no, what does everyone need? Mm -hmm. feels, feels much more feminine. feels much more appropriate for, for me and my personality to, to actually ask what's in the room and what's needed. Mm -hmm. And if everyone comes in and they lie down and you're like, oh, wow, we're really tired. You know, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take them into this full Ashtanga thing or a very, you know, extroverted, vigorous practice. Although I think that has a place, you know? Um, so I've changed a lot with asana over the years. Well, I have some deeper questions regarding that because, you know, my knowledge of you as a teacher is more in the Anusara realm. And I think I've had this awareness because I've heard you talk about Richard Richard Freeman and, you know, your Ashtanga history. And then there's also been an awareness just in seeing your practice as a student and, yeah, the depth and, um, well, I mean, I guess I use depth, but there's because I've been thinking about depth a lot. And in this context, although this isn't the context I've been playing with, 
being able to do those more um, fancy or challenging asanas, I do um, associate more with an Ashtanga practice. And so I heard you say that the pandemic really shifted it for you. And, and that makes sense to me intellectually. And I also find myself curious if it was also part of the journey of menopause, like where you were at in that journey, if that was just the timing of it was with the pandemic, or if that had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the pandemic sort of maybe kicked my, <laughs> my stronger practice out the window in a way. Um, I was just sort of hanging on to that, like a couple of days a week. You know, I would I would go and then there was a beautiful community gathering during the pandemic in the Shambhala Center. Here was a gorgeous place to go. And it was it was nice to get out of the house and, and come together, even though we wore masks for a while, which was weird. Um, but then we could take them off for a certain period of time. That was lovely. But I think, you know, honestly, my Ashtanga practice started to shift when I started on Yasara Yoga. You know, it was like I started to realize like I could break things down and just work towards, you know. Urdhvadanirasana and not um, have this whole practice that, you know, two hours to get to, <laughs> one and a half hours to get to Urdhvadanirasana and then this whole sequence of finishing poses. The Shtanga practice is, is a huge practice. And I think, you know, the yoga scene has changed so much. Anyway, people want shorter practices. They don't want to spend two hours usually, although I have a few two-hour practices um, here. They're very broken down. So I learned through Anyasara how to break down posture, how to um, fall in love with mythology, with my studies with Douglas Brooks, Sally Kempton. The, the power of mythology moving through the body became of, of a great interest. And I, I started to really revel in, wow, I don't have to do all of that. You know, in one, just one practice, I could break that up and make that, you know, a couple of two or three, four practices a week that would get to all parts of the body, but not have to do them all at once. And, um, and so I really, you know, the question that you asked, I think really my stronger practice started to shift majorly when I started to study more Iyengar yoga and more Anusara yoga. And yet there was a thread of that Ashtanga piece that I still really loved and adored, which was silence and breath and um, a sequence that you could rely on that was just allowing you to be in a meditative flow that didn't have a lot about you know thinking, the mind, or um, a lot of talking. And so there's a part of, of, of me that, that still wants to bring some of that into my teaching because I think a lot of classes can be filled a lot with a lot of talk. Um, and a lot of the kind of thinking, like bring your thigh back, move your tailbone under, you know, it's like without even, without even breath orientation. So, um, so it really started to shift in a good way. And then I also started to want to bring a thread of that Ashtanga practice through my teaching, um, which was really um, the beauty of pranayama and the prana and the apana patterns. And that I didn't want to lose that. Because I had been in Anusara classes where I felt like there was just way too much talking and not enough of the thread of that meditative awareness moving through the practice. So it's kind of how we start to get really good skills, but then you you don't want to lose a part that you had that you treasured. And, and really, I think that was what Richard's beauty was, was what he called internal form. And that was breath and drishti and bandhas. And, and to this day, I incorporate all of that because I, I believe we're orienting, orienting to the central channel, to what we would say in, in meditation, the coalescence of, of, of the raudri or the kundalini current is really what we're after. And so if every practice can have that orientation, whether it's biomechanically or breath or both, I chose to integrate those two paths which I love to this day. I I think it makes sense. And I think that we all operate that way, whether we're aware of it or not. Like we have this foundation of whatever the practice was earlier. And then it evolves as we evolve and as we expand. I actually wrote in my notes, I'm teaching a series right now, primarily targeted at people who are new to the practice, but also trying to support, you know, longtime practitioners to go deeper and not deeper as in bigger asanas, but deeper, you know, inside (laughs) energetically. 
And I wrote in my notes for the first week, play with more silence. Uh, because I feel like I have been aware of that in my own teaching. Um, yeah, just trying to get all the words in to give the alignment instructions and also weave, <laughs> you know, a theme. There's like, a, you know, all the balls. And and I was like, play with more silence. And I want to continue to do that. So it's... I think it's, it's, it's beautiful to give our students more space to find their own way. And Richard was really about that. I always called him a coyote teacher because he really didn't tell you <laughs> what to do or how to do it or what you were doing wrong or any of that. I mean, he might come over and give you a subtle adjustment, but I, that's why I think the coyote teaching is sort of like allowing the student to find their way. And, you know, I also appreciated how John Friend and my other Iyengar teachers would come in and kind of actively show you what you were not understanding. Both seem to be important at different times. Um, but I think the increase of silence is super important because that's where we heal. Mm -hmm. We heal in a thought-fixed state. We heal in a calm interior space. So, you know, I think, I think that's beautiful that you're adding that into um, depth teaching and experience. I just, can you speak more about the thought-fixed state? I mean, I've I've had the, you know, the blessing of receiving that as a student of yours and have just loved the way you speak about it. And I would imagine, you know, we're kind of going deep in our conversation here for folks who maybe don't have a lot of experience with yoga. And so can you speak more about that sattvic state, please? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so important. And, you know, if you just have like a really deep shavasana, you know, um, lately when I've been on my meditation retreats with with my teacher, Paul Muller Ortega, we have been starting every cycle of meditation with 10 minutes of Shavasana, <laughs> you know? And I've been like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like the power of 10 minutes. I mean, who teaches 10 minutes Shavasanas anymore? I'm really attempting, even in my shorter classes, to give that benefit of a longer Shavasana period because you know, I know in some instances, people are doing two minutes of Shavasana and we're not able to drop in to the sattvic state. So the sattvic state is that, you know, if you have a good 10 minute Shavasana, you will feel it. You will feel everything drop. Everything, your bones get heavy. This, you know, I will register around a six, seven minute into the 10 minute Shavasana. Oh, I'm finally dropping. And when we drop, we, we, it's like, we're letting, we're learning to let go and letting go is that we're not really in charge. Like the personality isn't really in charge, which is hard for human beings with our egos, right? We think we're in charge of everything. And so I think, I think this, in this it kind of goes back to our previous um, conversation around letting go of like my Ashtanga practice to a certain degree is it really about letting go? It's like, I'm not really in charge. This is what feels appropriate right now for life, for handling everything that I need to in my life, uh, to not push. So the, the, the letting go in Shavasana is sort of the precursor to um, deep meditative states. So when our personalities begin to merge with what we would call the absolute consciousness or high vibration, when that, when we're doing that, and we get a little hit of that in Shavasana. So you don't have to be a deep meditator to experience the beginning phases of this is to just go into a deep, 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 silent meditation. And then you start to feel that dropping and letting go and letting go and letting go and letting go. And it's like, you know, Richard used to do this beautiful release of really almost shedding your body. It's called Shava or corpse, right? For a reason, because we're, we're just temporarily shedding the stress. We're shedding the personality just momentarily. And then when we come back, we are revived because we've met that really deep inner peace. And that's what we call sattva. And then, you know, when you, when you talk about meditation, it's, there's even more benefit. Because as we've learned, as you have learned to traverse, especially with a mantra practice to go in, 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 in. The first we get kicked out, we get kicked out, we get, you know, which is appropriate. We get kicked out of our meditation practice. It's okay. It's good. And then we dive back in and then sooner or later, we're able to hover in that, what we would call the fourth state of consciousness, which is the Tria state, which is extraordinarily healing. 
it's again where your personality just just takes a back seat and merges with this higher vibration of which we call the absolute consciousness or goddess consciousness or you know creator whatever we want to say something bigger than our personality that we're made of it's it's the irony and and when you come out of that state it's like you've got a little you've got to drop more of the universal moving through your personality right and the idea of yoga is that we become so immersed in that bubble bath of vibration daily that we we begin to take another drop of the universal moving through our lives moving through our senses right that eventually that peaceful state inside is now registering on the outside so through our tongue through our talking through our speech through our actions that we're actually more peaceful. I actually believe, Angela, that this is going to lead to world peace. Is more people accessing that inner peace inside brings that to their outer life. You know, that's why we don't want to rush people out of uh, an awesome practice without a good shavasana into their lives. You think about that. Like we rev them up and we don't give them proper shavasana and then they get in their car and they go home and they have an argument or they get, you know, there's some sort of reaction to the outer circumstances in life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the peaceful state is, is, is non-reactionary. Um, it's, it's, it's non-fight or flight. Mm-hmm. It's a calm nervous system, which is going to increase what we call the soma value. Um, which is just a lot of, lot of goodness coming through you. Um, we call it soma because it's nectar. It's, it's, it's like coming out of a yoga, coming out of Angela's class and feeling like you walk into that, the Utah skies and you're like, ah, it's so beautiful. I am so grateful to be alive, right? It's that euphoria we feel about being alive and, uh, and everything that we have to endure in, in, in kind of a hard way is eased by our practices. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of in a nutshell. <laughs> the sophic state, you know, <laughs> is really crucial to awakening. Thank you, Jeannie. Yeah. And I feel like I'm living it. I, I loved that you said that the other night because I believe this so strongly. And yeah, I'm still, I don't necessarily think meditation is the only way in, but I definitely feel like it is a very powerful way in. And I'm quite passionate about it myself um, as I, I feel like I'm a slow student. And I say that of myself with love that just like, you know, I, the things, the things that have hung around the longest in my life, as far as practice goes, they haven't been a like dive in sort of headfirst craze. Um, it's been a slow unfolding and meditation has definitely been that for me and I appreciate it now in ways that I really couldn't appreciate it five years ago, 10 years ago. And I was talking with my therapist this week about consciousness and something that really resonated when you were saying that, well, the other night when we were on a Zoom call about the goddesses and you said, peace begins within. So if we want to experience peace outside of ourselves, it starts inside of us. And this, I believe so strongly and then this referring back to this conversation with my therapist who I, I we haven't specifically talked about her meditation but i have a sense that she also meditates just in the way just in the way that our you know conversations go um but she said you know angela that um when you're more conscious or when anyone's more conscious they see that they have more options you know and i cuz just the pain of being unconscious, you know, when we're living in that state, you know, I, you know, come in and out of that. And, you know, I, I feel that when I'm in that state of consciousness, there's a freedom and this <laughs> so much freedom. And it's just like one more thing that I don't like, I sense, I'm like, I want to hold on to this, you know, like I want to live here and yet I am not living <laughs> all the time. And so it's been an interesting journey to, to have an intellectual understanding of it, but then again, in practice, have quite a different experience of navigating, you know, in and out of what the conditions are in front of me, um, and then going back inside to the home within and 
and connecting to the soma, the nectar, the consciousness, and feeling like I can operate then with more peace in my relationships. Well, you know, we, we say in, in, in the Neelakanta path that I'm on of meditation that with more sattva inside, with more peace that we cultivate through accessing those deep Turiya states, um, we have the abilities to stand on the ledge of freedom more clearly with more decision making, right? Because, you know, something comes at us in life that we typically react to. And I've noticed this a lot in myself, um, especially around family and um, even my husband and our patterns that I can pause more because the sattvic state has been cultivated to such a degree, not that it's perfect, um, but to such a degree that I can actually stand on the ledge of freedom. So the ledge of freedom is really about choice. Do I react as I have always reacted or do I pause and make a different reality here? Mm -hmm. This is how we co-create our future. Yeah, is and like you know, the subject state is not going to tolerate fight or flight. So I think that's really important. We understand that the nervous system is being rendered sattvic. and then and then you know, when you're meditating, we're we're actually going to the pre-ego awareness space called the buddhi. Right. And, and imagine that you, you're impacting that space prior to your ego. And, and, and the buddhi is where all the memories are held. So if we're, if we're becoming more and more sophic inside, it's giving us this pause before we might react to a situation that we would normally just kind of just react to because we're in a fight or flight. Even, even like, I don't mean like big fight or flight, although it could be. Mm -hmm. you know, PTSD kind of thing, or it could be just this pattern that we have inherent through our relationships or what we learned that is sort of just running the show. But that the advantage of standing on the ledge of freedom is that you get to co-create your future by your actions and your speech. So it's being super responsible for what comes off your tongue. And um, I, I'm realizing that more and more and wanting to cultivate, you know, for example, just better and better relationships. And if I can't, you know, letting some relationships go that aren't uh, coherent or, um, you know, some relationships just we're not going to see each other, but we can still love each other. We can still have peace and, and, and to love through difference and to acknowledge that, you know, we're not right all the time or wrong all the time that it's not about that it's really we're we're all made of something different and yet at the core we're unity we're all made of the same so how do we love through difference and stand on the ledge of freedom and ob observe someone else's experience and acknowledge that they have an experience that's different than ours is okay right it's it's i think it's really important that we understand that we can still love through these um these differences. And I think when we're able to do that through a sattvic state, we can stand on the ledge of freedom and decide that peace is more important than being right. Yeah. Love is more important than being right. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of how it, 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 it works is, is to, to, to get into a sattvic state, you have a lot of choice. And choice is everything if we want to co-create our lives. Like, you know, think about what you really want, you yearn for in your life. We're not going to get there through our reactionary modes. That's just going to give us more pain. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really fun to start to see, you know, to practice this new way of responding versus reacting. And, you know, I'm experiencing it primarily with Grayson these days. And, you know, he's going through changes. He's 10 and, you know, touching in more to the masculine and, you know, different, having big emotions. And I notice that, yeah, when I can stay in that peaceful state and respond instead of react. So I would say <laughs> in the past, um, I would take things personal and I would take, you know, some of the behavior as almost a personal attack. And, you know, it's embarrassing, of course, to say this on something that I'm going to share all over, but I think it's also important to to admit these things because um, it just, it really gives reverence for the human experience and the journey that we're all on. And so 
knowing now that I do want to create a different experience for multiple reasons um, with my son and in all my relationships, um, it's really fun to see that when I do pause, like you're saying, and I can stay peaceful within and respond that, that the whole thing is different. Everything is different. And and that's, you know, you know, of course, lights me up with hope and encourages me to to keep meditating, uh, to keep practicing. And I find it really inspiring. Well, I think I think, you know, as, as a mother of two, I think it's really important that we recognize that we can have this kind of relationship with our with our children. I sometimes wish I had the awareness I have now when they were coming up, you know, and I can see like you know, what I reacted to when they were smaller. And of course, they probably bear the brunt of some of that. And as part of their, their destiny and dharma to, to work through some of that as well. Um, but now I just, I am like, wow, how do, what do I want to co-create? Like, how do I want to move forward? Um, and, you know, even with, like, I'm saying, like, there has, of course, there's still incongruence with certain relationships that we're going to have. It's not just going to be, you have intention to be peaceful, but someone else doesn't, you yeah. know, can't shift that for someone else, but you can show up in that peaceful place and, and love through difference and be an example of that. And then you kind of have to let go, right? It's just, um, but I think with our children, it's, it's such a, an important opportunity to, I've got, you know, adult children now and that that's another stage of letting go. And also, you know, the other day I was saying to my husband, but we're still a parent, you know, and so we still have the power to be self-reflective with our children because they're, they're testing those places as young adults. Um, you know, for example, just being respectful of, of other family members or decision-making, you know, and they don't, they don't have that. They don't have the the years, they don't have the experience. So I think, you know, peacefully coming to a, a place with a child or an adult child and just giving the power of self-reflection, whether it's really something beautiful that they've done to acknowledge them or something incongruent that also needs to be brought to the table in a way that's um, not not reactionary, but just, hey, you know, like I did this the other day, hey, I'm just a little disappointed by that decision. I'd like to understand better how you came to this decision. It's very different than, you know, saying, I can't believe, well, how could you possibly, you know, you, you disappointed everybody. You know, that's just another samskara that we're putting in our children that then they're going to have to work through. You know, so it's how, you know, I think getting curious and bringing um, uh, some discernment to our speech is so powerful. It's the yoga of speech. Mm -hmm. It's like not just on our mats. It's not just on the cushion. It's how do we bring the soma value back through our actions and speech is, is what we would call, call open-eyed samadhi, right? You know, in the practice that I teach, we close our eyes when we meditate to go in and to have our mantras actually start to remove negativity and clear the subtle body so that we can come out here and be more in practice without all these reactions that are held in our subtle system. It's really beautiful and it's very powerful. And I think this is why they say it takes life, lifetimes because, you know, we're always working on, it's not like we're an end game, you know, evolution or awakening is not a one point goal. It's, it's, it's lifetimes of, of opening and, and, and being in self-reflection and growing ourselves and, and, and hitting those locks in the road and, and just seeing if we can navigate with more more skill. Yes. I want to speak to, because I'm also, I've interviewed other yogis and, you know, meditation practitioners. And so I think it'd be fun to talk about the mantra practice a little bit more. You know, I've reignited, it's, it's kind of comes and goes. I, my meditation practice has been steady, but my mantra practice has ebbed and flowed. And I'm very much in a state again of using my mantra. And after our conversation last week, where we were talking about the goddesses, and I remember when you uh, delivered the mantra to me through ritual, you said, no. <laughs> and I'm curious, because this is now quite some time ago, how this 
yeah, what your perspective is today on this, you know, with the amount of time and practice that you have, you said, this is what I remember. And so it could, yeah, be fuzzy that to not be attached to the meaning of my mantra, to just let the sound of vibration be what it is. And it's interesting because now there's a, a goddess that I'm working with um, and I'm like, it's the same. And so I was like, well, do I need to do a separate practice with her Bija mantra um, when I'm already using the same mantra in my mantra practice? And so oh, like, I didn't intend to ask you this today, but it's actually like fun and really fits with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one thing we can just kind of cut to the chase on is initiatory mantra is, um, I said that on the call, is activated through ritual, through puja, right? Through sacred ceremony. And that's what uh, allows the mantra to become virya. Without the puja, we're just looking at a mantra in a book. It has power because all mantras are powerful, but it is not activated in the same way. The other thing that's really important to understand the difference of these is that one is on the tongue usually, and one is being ingested inward. Mm. So when you're when you're talking about initiatory mantra that's turned on, activated, and then imbibed inward, we are working with directly the subtle body. So you know most of, most of our practices are in the vama current; they're on the outer current until we imbibe a mantra and we melt it inside. And now we're talking about the jaystha current right? Jaishta meaning elder, the one that comes before, right? This, this, this current that is not available to us through our minds. It's outrageous. The mantra out of its own um, swabhava or its own inherent nature knows how to go inward, just like a hummingbird to nectar. So the initiatory mantras are very much about um, releasing some scaric residue in the subtle body. Now, when we do a mantra on the tongue, it, it, it's going to be powerful for you, Angela, because you have been clearing the central channel with a mantra that you're imbibing inward. So any, any mantra then that we do outward still has power, still has efficacy. I think the, the, the challenge is as the Shakta um, mantras and goddesses became known, they were codified, they were written down, there was mythology, there was sort of, you know, oh, this mantra means this. We just have to be careful because if we attach a mantra to a meaning, because they really don't have meaning, um, they all are going to have this power to clear you, um, to, you know, to rid you of your, of your pain. However, if they're done just on the tongue outward, we have to really question that. How much does asana, pranayama, slightly interior, but not going all the way into the core of the core of the core. I've never met any practice that I have experienced what I'm experiencing now because the, the trajectory is introversive, even with an initiatory mantra, um, even though we may pop up to the surface when we're doing those deep mantra practices. So, you know, how much do you attach to the meaning of your goddess? You know, I just see them all as, sisters of each other that are all working on me it's one unified energy we call it kundalini right or raudri current that has a particular flavor like durga which we both love right she is the breakthrough goddess she is going to be more fiery and that is like at times we're going to feel that intensity of our practice like, wow, she, I feel so humbled. You know, I mean, I cannot tell you how humbled I have been in this initiatory practice. You know, I have six iterations now of, of this mantra practice, many, many hours on my cushion. And I can tell you, it's going to activate the Kundalini in a way that an outer recitation of a mantra or outer pranayama is just not going to do. You may stir the Shakti in these practices, no doubt. And you may get a hit of Kundalini, but this is like constant. She's constantly moving through you as her, you know, most powerful form. And at times she will be like Lakshmi. It will be really beneficent. You will feel so much Shri moving through you. You feel so happy and so elated, you know, and 
She'll be like Chinamasta, where she will cut your head off and make you look at your ego. Right. And and then, you know, I feel like as I get older and older, I'm like, how can I serve those that I'm around? Mm -hmm. How can I be a better person? So, you know, the goddess tradition gets a little bit confused when we just think I'm going to do this goddess for this reason. I'm not saying it's bad or wrong. However, when you're imbibing a mantra inside of you, you're activating the kundalini. She's going to decide which goddess you need. Mm -hmm. And then we play with her. So we're playing with her in this course. You know, we're choosing a goddess that we're attracted to or we have shadow with. You know, I think that when we pick a, a goddess to work with our shadows, it can be very, very powerful because then we're like, okay, you know, I want to get, I want to get down and dirty with my negative ways or, you know, the way I'm jealous of someone else or, you know, all these ways in which we overshadow our own capacities, like, you know, and that's kind of pushing it out. Like I want what she has, you know, rather than actually actualizing your own potential, which is what yoga is really after is, is for us to become sovereign, like, like Lalita Devi, ready to, to wear our own crown and to stand in our own presence, our own capacity, and not have to look to others for affirmation or um, adulation or, you know, it's nice if you get a comment, sure, you can receive that, but you don't need it. Mm-hmm. And that's really Lalita's essence. So I use the goddesses to describe those inner states. Um, and then that's my hope for every woman is and, and man to actually actualize those inner states inside of you and then and then experience all the flavors of the goddesses mm-hmm. that naturally come through you. You don't have to decide, well, I'm going to work with Durga because Durga is just going to show up on, on in your meditation as the cut through breakthrough goddess that is like, girl, you got to get down and dirty with this kind of pattern that you've been at for 25 years. You know, it's like, it's that kind of thing that you start to come up and out of your meditation practice, like, oh my gosh, that shadow, I cannot live with her anymore. I no longer want to animate my sense of lack. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes back to the Anavamala, the basic mala, uh, the root contraction that all human beings feel is the sense, like, I, I long for union with wholeness. I long to be whole. I long to be fulfilled. And in a certain sense, maybe that means we want to be seen, but we actually don't need to be seen because the wholeness is already there inside of you. So there's no need for, you will get seen when you have wholeness inside, you will get that reflection by the outer world, but you won't need it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you won't need it for your ego to feel, to feel better. This has very much been my journey, Jeannie. <laughs> I think the Durga, yeah, the humility piece, I think, yeah, when it's, it, I have been very humbled um, in the last couple of years and and I'm truly grateful for it. I think, you know, I feel just really um, better. I, d- I mean, I didn't want to say better about myself. I, I like who I am better now than I was a couple of years ago. And so, you know, that feels like a gift. And to be able to be of service, I do feel, you know, that I want to be increasingly connected to the energy of, yeah, like Lalita Devi, but from a place of service, because that is how I want the rest of my life to look is, yeah, how can I serve? Yeah. And I think, you know, um, you know, through the gateway of, we talked about this the other night in the call too, through the gateway of loss, of grief, of pain, of any kind, it's a, it's the portal. And the Shiva Sutras talk about that. It's like, it's like the tantric tradition says, right? We got to play this game of hide and go seek. And that actually we've contracted into this thickened state so that we have a longing. We have a longing for our wholeness. Otherwise, we would come here and actually serve from that place, which I think they're very rare human beings that have done that and are examples of that. Maybe the His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, perhaps Ananda Moima, saint that lived up until the 1980s. Is she the hugging, yeah. hugging saint? She no, hugging? that's, that's, um, no, she's, she's still alive. Um, but this is another more mom, which I have all over the studio here, but she you may have been on that. I can't remember if we went to her ashram when you were in India with us, but 
Um, she has ashrams all over India, serving primarily women, girls, um, for uh, spiritual, you know, prowess and awakening. And so, anyway, um, I think that uh, I'm trying to think of the point that I wanted to come back to here that was juicy. It was the journey oh. that the you know the, yes, the portal. Exactly. Pain as the portal, a contraction as the necessary, the embodiment as a necessary cloak that is, is driving our longing for wholeness again. So it's why we take up initiations and spiritual practices because the longing is so great. And perhaps we're picking up a thread from a past life that we're, we're carrying forward a little bit in this lifetime is the idea of many spiritual paths. Um, so pain as a portal is really important. I know my pain and definitely growing up with alcoholism really has driven me and perhaps a lifetime prior to this, I feel some sort of resonance with that, that is, is, is drawing me into harnessing myself to practice every day. So at this point, it's not like, oh, I got to go practice. It's like my longing, my devotion is what takes me to my mat and to my cushion you know, my cushion every day and my mat, you know, maybe every other day or every third day. Um, I move my body every day, but I, I don't, it doesn't have to be in the, in the realm of asana these days. So, but the, 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 for me, my, my mantra practice is non-negotiable. Of course I let it go at times, but mostly it's like drinking in my, my spiritual medicine, Mm -hmm. um, for the day and uh, often twice a day. So it's just a devotion. It's it's a devotion to to being a better person, to serving, like you're saying, at a higher level of myself, where my ego doesn't have to have that, you know, pat on the back. It's just like no. It's just you are humbled enough in spiritual awakening that we recognize that we're not in charge, and the ego is like, oh, it's true, <laughs> you know. And and as a result of that, as a result of that humbling. I find like, what is the word? It's like a, the devotion is greater because I realize that this personality isn't really after anything. You know, I, I, can, I can say that that's really shifted for me through many years of particularly meditation. It, it is, it's, it, she just gets in there deep enough that the samskaras are, are released from the subtle body. And, you know, that's where we hold these old memories and old beliefs about ourselves from this lifetime, past lifetimes. And those beliefs are like, I'm not enough. And, or I am so, I'm so beautiful. Look at me, you know, like I'm so cool. You know, that it's like, it goes in both ways, but usually I find with a lot of women, it's this sense of like, I'm not enough. I'm really not enough. And really, if you look at arrogance, it really goes back to, I'm not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not enough. I, I, I don't, have this. I don't have that. I need more of this. I need more of that. And really everything that you need, this is sort of the old cliche is in you. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of how do you access that? And that is where the mantra practice for me has been the most powerful practice I have ever experienced. And I've dabbled in quite a different number of different meditation styles, but these mantras, they're living, they're alive and they know how to go in it's not me trying to go in. It's the mantra knowing where to go. They're alive. They're living beings. And they know how to they know how to go in and sort of like kick out the plaque in a subtle body and the icebergs. And in that process, we are humbled mm-hmm. because we recognize that we are not in charge, that ultimately, you know, that we're not the doer, the karma bala. You know, it's like the anavamala is that that little part of ourselves that feels insignificant and, and separate. And that leads to the Mahiya Mala, which is the Mala or the cloaking of differentiation. I'm Jeannie, you're Angela. We're different. And we just focus on that, right? But we, we, but really we're sisters, right? And we have a longing to awaken. And so in that third glance, we say we see nothing but each other. And we recognize the karma mala is that part of the cloaking that thinks it's in charge of everything in life. And when that's humble, wow, things begin to shift in your spiritual awakening. So I think pain and being humbled is definitely part of what we experience when we start to wake up. Mm-hmm.
What a gift. (laughs) It truly is a gift. So, I mean, I think that the way that we've talked about this in our familiarity could probably lead to a lot of questions for folks. And I don't think that's a problem at all. I'm just speaking to it. And so I will be linking folks to your website and, you know, your social media accounts and such so they can find you. And then I just had a question. Um, do you have information on, can you pronounce it, the Niakala meditation? Niakala meditation. Um, you know, on my website, I have a link to meditation that has a lot of information about Nila Kanta. I you know, pretty much do initiations once a month when I'm in town, um, do them on retreats when we're on retreats. Yeah. It, so there's a lot of information there that they can find if they want to go to find Blue Throat Yoga, also Paul's website. Um, he's a master teacher in the world. I highly suggest people listening to him. You know, Sally lives through me. She's no longer in her body, but um, all my teachers, I feel like, have had such a huge impact, and Paul being really the most impactful teacher of my life. I will be with him until I pass or he passes, and then onward. <laughs> you know, it's like that feeling of of someone that's that great, that has that much goodness to share, and the wisdom of the mantras is beyond anything I've ever experienced. So, yeah. It's fun to listen to you talk about it. And and it's fun to, to play with it and practice it. I, I'm super grateful. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful to to you and to your path and to um, what you're doing to help people in your own way, in your own capacities. You're so talented. So I just, I'm so honored to have a conversation that you're interested in and want to share this. Well, it's, I'm, I'm very honored because I, <laughs> I mean, especially knowing that you have this big trip coming up and yeah, that you took the time to sit down with me. It means a lot. Oh, it means a lot to me. I would, I would always take time for you always. Thank you, Jeannie. It's, I, we didn't really get into, um, yeah, like our, me being your student. And so I'll speak to that in the intro and outro of this before I publish it. And is there anything else that you feel like you really want to share before we say goodbye? I mean, I think just that I have my own personal dharmic destiny feels very connected to women and and to women's healing of their body, the the yoni in particular, to heal our wounds, to heal collectively the wounds of abuse. Um, even if we haven't endured abuse f- physically, which I haven't, but I um, feel the, the wounds that need to be healed in our bodies in order to awaken the shakti. You know, she's, she's dormant three and a half times that coiled at the base of the spine. And in order to awaken her, we have to heal. We have to heal the muladhara. And, um, and that feels important to me to support women in their destiny and to uplift them and to have them feel worthy inside. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this ancient symbol of the downward facing triangle that we see 25,000 years ago in the Indus Valley civilization of the goddesses. And we even see early images of Durga and the power of women's leadership at that time through my research with a beautiful scholars, uh, Vicki Noble, Laura Amazzone, um, who's written a beautiful book on the healing of the menses and the cycles um, with her work with Durga in particular been very inspirational to me and have been, as Sally Kempton was, a great mentor for me to um, to understand that the goddess is, is, is the kundalini. And that is in every human being, the potential to raise the vibratory rate to such a degree that this energy begins to flow in us. Yet, I also feel this important part around women and their bodies and healing the, the pelvic floor, the yoni the Muladhara, in order for this to be our home again, to be the home of the sleeping serpent and uh, to help women realize this energy. And, and as they realize this energy, to take this energy into the world and into their capacities, gifts and talents, and to spread more of women's leadership and prowess and healers and shamans uh, into the world, as I believe women will lead us into the Sat Yuga time, it's already happening. I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's already happening too. And I, 
I've been really fascinated with this like paradigm shift, which really resonates with me that, you know, there, I don't even know where it came from. Um, but it, yeah, I guess because I'm so not connected with it of the damsel in distress. I mean, all the women in my life, the women that are my dear friends are fucking badasses. <laughs> and I'm like, how did this like come to be? And I feel like we're in this, this time where things are shifting and I, I feel it in myself. I see it in my other female relationships and that the, the masculine, I have this curiosity of, you know, like, is there an ability for the masculine to hold a steadiness for the feminine to then be the light and rise up in these ways that can lead us forward. And <laughs> oh, so beautiful. Yeah. 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 And I think we do need, we do still need masculine in our leadership, but we also need to be in the the circle of sharing and um, community. And that's kind of what I've brought forward with my, my year long program of evolutionary women's circle is to support women together. So I will lead on a sort of vertical, but I will also ask for this horizontal to be present because I, I don't want to be a, a yoga teacher that thinks she knows everything or is in charge of everything. I want to learn from everyone. And I think if we, if we, if we can have that where we can step the ego down into community, this is part of the Sat Yuga is, is community. We're helping each other. We're not afraid of others' capacities. You know, you have great capacities, Angela, that I don't, that, you know, that I, I can look to you for certain capacities and not feel threatened, mm-hmm. but really important Sat Yuga leadership. And so I want to be, I want to help women. And I want women to help me, you know? Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I feel called to. I feel like my, my meditation practice is clarifying that because every time you meditate, you're getting clear about who, what you are and what you're here to do and how you're here to contribute. Um, and I feel like women, they need to feel that essence of their ancient roots, powerful leaders, powerful healers, powerful shamans that need to kind of lead us into this new era not kind of but really um we women need to lead the way and um and i think if men can step back and see that they can be led uh, and and then we appreciate males for their their <laughs> their maleness <laughs> um and and that we have both male and female in us and ultimately it's just one energy that's neither masculine or feminine it's um it's unified I think we could really change the world. And I hope in my lifetime, I get to see more and more before I leave this planet. And um, I hope that I get to, it's already happening. Millions of women rising up all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I just saw something around Palestinian and Israeli women coming together. And I thought, yes, this is it. You know, this is our hope for the future. It is really inspiring. I've been thinking recently about how it actually hasn't been that long that we've had the right to vote in our country. You know, just when I think about, yeah, just perspective on all of this. And yeah, I love men. I don't want to alienate. And I know you do too. And um, yeah, so it's, but I, I also have just feel really aware of the women that I have attracted into my life and my circle. And I don't feel like I have that experience of competition in my friendships. It it feels very uplifting. And not that I don't experience that with other women, but in my female friendships, my close friends, I I feel uplifted and there's space for all to shine in their individuality and talents and gifts. Mm-hmm. So what a, a blessing. And I hope to cultivate more of that in yeah, in the way that I show up in the world and the way that I support other women and uh, hopefully allow them space to shine. And yeah, that would be my intention. Mm, well, that's my experience of you. So yeah. So thank you so much. <laughs> what a gift this was. And yeah, I'm excited for your trip and, you know, look forward to connecting um, on the call that I'm doing with you this week. So thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, me. I'm so honored. Aww. Love you so, so much.
I love you too. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. (laughs) Bye, love. Thank you so much for listening to the conversation Jeannie and I had today on the podcast. Here are a few of my takeaways. So the first is, I don't think will come as a surprise. It's her devotion. I think it really comes through in our conversation. And I know that it comes through being one of her students. Her commitment, her deep commitment to her practices seems to fuel this passion or feed the passion that then radiates out from her. And then it's really fun to think about, you know, if there's something that you want to share in your life, something that you're passionate about, you never quite know how that trickles out into the rest of the world, the rest of the universe in your offering or your service. I think that's really beautiful how her devotion um, shines out. The other big takeaway is just reflecting on the sattvic state, using practices to access that and how responding from that state creates a different experience. So I'm deeply grateful that Jeannie spent time with me on the show today and that this gets to go out into the world and reach people and perhaps, you know, ignite them, if not for their yoga and meditation practice, if not for your yoga and meditation practice, then for whatever it is you choose to devote yourself to. Thank you for tuning in to the Ritual of Practice podcast. You can find the show home at ritualofpractice.com. Follow us on your favorite listening platform to receive weekly inspiration for your practices. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you love. Until next time, keep practicing. Keep practicing.